last week. We finished with Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And what we're doing is actually just circling back to those two verses. Um, it was really the it was really the, the climax of what's happening in, in those first three chapters, but we certainly did not plumb what was going on in them to the degree, I think, to which they deserve to be. So um, let us just read Romans 3. Uh, I'm going to read uh, five or six verses, probably just to the end of the chapter, but we'll focus on these two verses, and we're going to pick up some of the themes that actually come through um, this passage as well. But now... And just think about that just for a minute. I'm not going to preach it yet, but think about this. But now think about that in terms of Abraham on the mountain. Think about what a but now would have meant to Abraham when he had the knife raised above his son. And then, but now, and he looks over and sees a ram caught in the thicket. That's, that's where we're going with this. So this but now has such tremendous import for the text. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So I'll stop reading there. And there's so much in there. But again, we're going to look at those first two verses. Let me quickly pray. Father, turn our eyes and our hearts in a spirit-filled way to the living God this morning. That we would render to you that which belongs to you and that we would worship you now in spirit and in truth lord embracing all that your word has for us and then causing us to live according to its commands and live according to its promises lord help me now to say what this passage means for your church today here in january 2021 uh, so make us attentive dear father help us to respond in faith and obedience we ask in jesus name amen so, actually, the next passage, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the, the, that section that's titled, Abraham is justified by faith. So, we start to talk about what justification means and what it means to be like Abraham in the next few sections. And so, just as a brief recap, chapters 1 through 3, I think we've taken about five sermons going through those. And Paul has made one point very clear. One point very clear, and that is whether you grew up a Jew or a pagan, everybody on earth stands guilty before God. That's his point in chapters one through three. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter what you did. You're guilty before God. And, and we saw that, although that might raise questions about the Jews and whether or not they were special to God, Paul says, yes, they were very special. They were blessed. They were given the word of God. They were given his oracles. They were given the prophets. But you still had to believe in the prophets. You still had to believe in the word of God. You couldn't just have it. And, you know, for us, the equivalent would be, well, you can't just have a copy of the Bible on your shelf. That's a blessing. Actually, Shannon, I just watched this video last night. Of, um, Chinese folks, um, likely in an area where with little access to the Bible, and they opened a suitcase that had been sent from an organization 
packed with Bibles. And it was like watching kids on Christmas morning. They were tearing into them and not pushing each other, but really, and they would pick them up and smell them. And the blessing of having the word is tremendous. But the next step is you've got to open it and believe it. And so that's the equivalent for us is that, you know, we are blessed in the church to have the word of God, to have his commands, to have fellowship. But we still need to believe. It's still a matter of the heart and what God does in the inner man with the Holy Spirit. So, and I'll acknowledge, and we've had some conversations this week about the toll that it can take to study the state of man, to study the nature of man. It takes a toll on us. You know, you think of the prophets, they were not lighthearted people. They weren't, you know, jolly skip around motivational speakers, the prophets. They were burdened with the oracles of God, especially when it came to dealing with sin. They were grievous men. men. In fact, Jesus Christ is said to be a man of sorrows, right? And so there's a, there's a sorrowful nature in terms of understanding and studying the state of man without God. But really, it, it, it begs the question, how desperately do people need God? How, I mean, how badly do people need God? You've probably all met somebody in the last 12 months now and maybe more so recently that you just believe, wow, they're so desperate for God and there's nothing else that they need. There's nothing else they can do. Um, an analogy that I like to think about these first three chapters is Paul takes like a tin can, you know, when you kind of empty it and there's soup in there and there's some stuff in the bottom. And what that tin can is things that we can do to make ourselves right with God. And what Paul has done, he's scraped the whole tin can clean. And there's nothing left. There's nothing in the human experience that we can say, well, maybe there's one thing we can do for God. It's gone. Paul says there's nothing. That's what these chapters are about. And the fact is the world, because of this reality, is in a desperate place. It's in a, an acutely desperate place right now. The world is in an acutely desperate place. And what I mean by acute is that they, some people are recognizing it more. They're feeling it more. Um, they're weary and wary. And, and just a couple of ways to see that they're, they have a fear of death. They have a fear of one another. There's an increase in suicide and drug overdose in double digits percentage wise. Um, anxiety and mental health has skyrocketed, especially among youth. Our youth are disoriented. They're lost. They're, they're feeling purposeless. They're looking for some kind of experience to ground their life in. Um, even young adults, more and more young adults are having tr trouble figuring out what life is about. And they, they meander, you know, late into their thirties and, and don't know what life is about because the, no one has rooted them in the purpose that God has for the world. So they need to be shown the way. I mean, that's as simple as the Christian message gets. They need to be shown the way. And the, the Bible doesn't just say, look how bad everybody is. The Bible has the way it has the path It shows us. And likewise, we, you know, we need to recognize that it's not just the world that needs the Lord. The church needs to commit to understanding the scriptures and looking into and gazing at the person of Jesus Christ. We need to commit in word and deed and faith all that God has for us. And we need to gaze ourselves into the perfect work of Christ. So have your finger. I'm going to give you a few scriptures to put your finger in while I get a hauls. Isaiah 9 we're going to look at. Luke 4, we're going to look at. Uh, John 12, we're going to look at. Numbers 21. So it's, it sounds like it's going to be a long sermon, but it's not. I'm just going to touch on these. But would love for you to be there in your Bibles so that you know, and you can even study them later, and bring your, bring your discoveries to our uh, Bible study on Wednesday.
So this but now, I mean, this is a huge but now in scriptures. It's a relief. As I said, imagine you're Abraham. Some of you with children can, you know, you feel this a bit more. Actually, all of you have had children, except for the children. But, you know, one day, Lord willing. So if you're Abraham and you've been called to this act of obedience, to, to fulfill the demand of the law, to fulfill the need for a blood sacrifice for sin, and you know that this son is your only son. It's the one you were promised for the seed. And, and then there's a, a but now. And for him, it was a rustle in the, in the thicket. And there was a ram who replaced his son. The weight that we're supposed to feel here is we are crushed. We are hopeless without God. But now. And it happens early in the book. So you think the rest of the book now is exploring what it means now to not be condemned under the law. To find our way out, not find our way out, to be found out. And so it's a relief that our sin, although it has shot us through, we've looked at, we looked at depravity last week and how our mind, our logic, our deeds, our words, our emotions, there's nothing about us without Christ that is a trustworthy gauge of the world, is a trustworthy gauge of reality or God. Everything in some way has been corrupted to varying degrees based on our experience. So we've been shot through. Sin has left us hopeless and actually dead. It's corrupted every part of us. And God's law, when it comes to those dead people, all it does is reveal how dead we are. All it is, it's like a flashlight in a cemetery. It does indeed confirm that we are all dead. And so God's law, it is perfect, it is right, and it is worthy of implementing and following, it does not bring us to life. It only tells us how dead we are. Again, but now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, which means God did manifest his righteousness through the law. He manifested how righteous he is, how good he is, how caring he is, how perfect he is, and how wise he is. He has manifested that righteousness but as we said last week, that's the righteousness that comes at us like a freight train. It's not a righteousness that benefits us in eternity. So then this but now says, but is there something else? Has God done something else besides revealing the law? Paul says, yes. Check out what it is. It's been manifested apart from the law, which means in, an, in a way that is separate from the law. It's not divorced from the law. Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's not, a, it's not an unrelated thing to the law. It's not a disjointed thing or a wholly new thing. But it is, a, it is a separate manifestation of righteousness. And it comes to us by faith, it says. He makes his glory known to us in a way that is accessible by faith, not by the law. Now has been. So there's these phrases in here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Those two words, now and has been, are time words. They're words that pertain to a chronology, something happening in history. If you're a history buff, you're getting excited. If you're not, you're thinking, where's this going, Tim? But now has been gives us a time signature that tells us about a historical development. That, word, that phrase has been means it already happened in the past. It's something that we can look back on. It's a historical event, which means it's not something that just happens 
secretly, individually in somebody's heart. The, the Christian faith is not merely something that takes place secretly in the inner person. It takes place in history. And our faith rests upon a historic event, something that happened, Paul says, but now and has been revealed. We rely on this historic event. In the similar way, if you're reading through the Old Testament and Moses goes up on the mountain and the cloud surrounds the mountain and there's thunder and lightning and he's up there for, is it 40 days? He's up there for a really long time, and the people are going, what's happening? That's a historic event. They can say, remember that time back in June when Moses went up on the mountain, and then the law came down, and then he got mad, and he broke them because we were sinners, and then, you know, they, it's a historic event. And so similarly, there's a historic event that Paul is saying, we need to pay attention to this because this is a new manifestation of righteousness. It's not another Moses going up on the mountain. It's God coming down from the mountain. And as John says, pitching his tent among the people. It's the revelation of Christ. It's the giving of his son. The law and the prophet, and so no mistake, this is the advent of Jesus Christ. It's nothing short of that, the birth and the appearing of God in the flesh as a, as a child. And I do want to look at two examples because Paul says the law and the prophets testify. They witness to it. So I'm just going to share two of my favorites. They're both from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They're, they're testifying to this new manifestation. Remember, a manifestation is just a revealing. It's something that was once hidden, and now the door is open. You can see it. The people who dwelt in darkness have seen a, um, a great light. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, for the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And then it goes on in verse 6 to say, for, us to us, for unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So that's, that's hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. The prophets testifying to that new manifestation. And then Isaiah 61 Isaiah 61 reads, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is the prophet writing, but he's writing as through the perspective of the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and with the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they shall be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations now we might think well maybe that's about somebody other than the messiah and couldn't that just be like nehemiah couldn't that be somebody else well jesus one of his first public appearances probably his first sermon or one of them it says that he went into the synagogue this is luke chapter four he went into the synagogue on the sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him 
and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Guess where he started reading? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and that to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, neat, Jesus. Who, who is this? Who are you going to tell us about? What's this character about? It says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him with ripe anticipation. Who is this about? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus stands up and has the audacity to open the scroll of Isaiah, one of the most well-known, highly prized passages in the history of Israel, and say, I'm the one. I'm the one. This is where Paul's getting at. The Old Testament was, was ready and waiting, and they were scribing, and they were prophesying to this new manifestation of righteousness, liberty, and, and gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of heaviness. Who's going to do that? And Paul says, but now... This is the one. This is the one that the prophets were talking about. This day has come. You know what this means? It means we're no longer doomed under the yoke of slavery, slavery and corruption. I mean, that's some street language for you. We're not doomed anymore. The law has put us in a place where we're doomed because there's nothing we can do. And, but then in the year of the Lord's favor, it's a new manifestation that gives us, instead of the freight train coming at us to keep the analogy, we get to get on the freight train. Well, it's not, maybe it's a passenger train. We get to get on the train. We are participating in the righteousness because it's the year of the Lord's favor. He has loved us. Well, what does this mean? It means that the historic bondage of the nations to evil is over. Scriptures say that he will no longer deceive the nations, being Satan. There's a reason why we see Chinese folk and people like us receiving Bibles and loving them because the nations are no longer under the deception of Satan. Satan is no doubt still at work, but the gospel has penetrated languages that we've never heard of people groups that we will never meet until heaven. The bondage of the nations to evil is over and the futility for the Jews of repetitive sacrifice is also over the pattern and power of sin for anyone who believes is over. So on an individual level, this means this but now is for you or, or somebody you know. If there is a pattern of bondage, a pattern to slavery, to sin, a pattern of, of evil, a pattern of futility, a pattern of guilt, you need to open into this passage and say, hey, but now you don't have to be that anymore because there's a Messiah. There's one who can free you from your oppression. God did not leave us condemned. Again, just picture Moses from, or uh, Abraham for a moment on the mountain, seeking to be obedient to God's command, which is his law, right? God commanded him, that's God's law, to go up and sacrifice a child. What a, what a devastating command. And yet he went up there and he said, the Lord knows. You know, maybe with Job, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And then God says, I'm not going to ask you to sacrifice your son. I'm going to sacrifice my son. That's the gospel, right? And so we have this idea that, but now the day has come. Folks, we live in this time of hope. We live in this time of favor. 
Today is the year of the Lord's favor. Make no mistake about that. We are in the year of Jubilee. We are in the year of the Lord's favor. Why? Because of grace. We see later in this passage that he passes over sins, giving an opportunity for people. The fact that sin is not judged today and fully rightly is God's grace, and it's an opportunity to be saved. So how do we access this freedom? We've got but now and by faith. That's the title of this sermon, by the way. I almost never tell you what my sermons are called. But two of my headings are just but now and by faith. Those are the two phrases that I really picked up in here that are going to guide us through becoming a Christian. But now we need to recognize the historic advent of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all God's promise. And then we need to ask the question, how do we access this? Where's the front door? You know, great. There's a story about the Messiah. He came. I wasn't at the synagogue. I didn't get to hear him preach that sermon. I didn't see him die on the cross. How do I get to participate? How do we access this freedom? Well, how, how is this righteousness manifest? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith, I looked it up in the, in the Greek. The word faith and trust and believe are all the same word. To, to believe in something is to put your faith in it, is to be entrust yourself to it. So the same word actually, back from last week, we saw what advantage has the Jews to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's the very same word entrusted it means. So putting your faith in something is to entrust yourself to it. If you, you know, if you have a financial advisor and you let them invest your money, you're entrusting something to them that is of great value to you, or at least of some value. You bring your car to a mechanic. You're entrusting the safety of your family to that mechanic. Well, to put our faith in Christ is to entrust our eternal souls to him. To, to trust in the work that he is going to do. And we're going to get more into this because faith can be a, a, an ambiguous thing or a nebulous thing. It's like, how do I even have faith? You might find yourself explaining that to a friend. Well, first we need to ask so how do we put our faith in Jesus? We'll look at that. How did God use Jesus to overcome sin? I mean, this is kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel. This is sort of the technical side. This is the handbook side of how it all happened. If, you know, the thief on the cross didn't understand all these things, right? He was there. He didn't get to go to a Bible study. He didn't get to learn all the nuts and bolts, but he still was with Jesus that day. So we have the privilege, again, of opening our Bibles and finding out and then enjoying and praising God for the way he brought about our salvation. How did God use Jesus to overcome sin? Verse 24, we're just going to take note of that because it answers the question. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified means to be declared right. right? It's to say, hey, you're, you're, not a sinner. you're not a sinner anymore. You're not condemned anymore. That's what justified means. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, sorry, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How did God deal with sin with Jesus? By shedding his blood. That's how your sin got dealt with, the blood of Jesus Christ, which is to be received by faith. So there's that word again. It's like, well, how do I receive the blood by faith? I mean, how do we do that? So first we need to recognize that it was blood that washed and cleansed our sin. Propitiation just means to deal with. 
to make right, to, to propitiate means to satisfy the demands of the law. So Jesus satisfied God's demands in the same way that the ram being caught in that thicket satisfied God's demands. God didn't ask that the ram and Isaac be sacrificed, right? Once the ram came, Isaac got to get off the altar. That's what it's like for a Christian. When, when Jesus comes along and we receive by faith his blood, we are no longer the condemned ones under the law because Christ climbed on the altar for us. And that is so key. So it's the blood that satisfied God's righteous demand. And we already saw that all of us are condemned, which is his demand is justice. So he dealt with the sin with sin by putting Christ on display propitiation very quickly. Numbers 21. I want to show you this passage and I'm in debt to actually John Piper for a sermon. He preached on this idea because I want you to find out what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's this story where Israel was complaining. Israel was being wicked. There's a lot of those stories. And in Numbers 21, there's an account of this. And one of the punishments that God sent was really nasty. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Sounds like my children. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So that's a lack of faith because he promised that they would not die. For there is no food and water and we loathe this worthless food. That is the wrong thing to say to a parent, let alone God. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. That's snakes. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So a quick change of heart when they realized the cost of sin, right? So Moses prayed that for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, and here's God's solution. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Make it out of bronze. Make one. And set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's one of the weirdest stories of healing in the whole Bible. God tells Moses to make a snake out of metal and the people who were bitten by the snakes, if they look at the metal thing, they'll live. What is that about? What does it mean to have faith in God's propitiation? John 12, 27 says, The ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Galatians 3.13, putting this together, says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember last week, curse. We are cursed under the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. How does the snake tie in? The curse is the venom of the snake. So what did God tell Moses to make? A picture of a snake. A picture of the curse of the venom, which was killing them. So when the snake is lifted up, the curse of God's punishment, they look at that symbol and they live. Did they have to touch it? No. 
Did they have to do some kind of ritual? No. Did they have to pray? No. They literally had to set their eyeballs in the direction of the snake. And the venom was reversed and they lived. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw them into myself. Jesus is saying, I am the one who became the curse. I am the one who became the venomous serpent. The sin that was killing you, the Bible says, he became sin who knew no sin. Christ became the snake for us. And God killed him, sacrificed him. And how do you put your faith in Jesus? What does the Bible, how does the Bible describe faith? Look. Just look. That's what it says. That's what Numbers 21 says. You want to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Look at him and recognize that he is the curse for you. That's it. There's nothing you can do to be saved. Even in the act of being saved, there's nothing you can do. You can't climb up onto the cross with him. You can't take the antidote and inject it yourself. You just look and you live. That's what it means by faith. So if you want the righteousness of God that comes through faith, all you have to do is look. That's why we preach the word, because in the preaching, we see with our spiritual eyes that which God has revealed. We weren't there on the day when Christ was elevated. They didn't even have iPhones back then, so there's no video of it. So you can't look at the sacrifice of Christ in its physical form. But we look because of the word of God through history at a time when God made his son a curse on our behalf. This righteousness of God is ex it's as accessible to you right now as your next breath. Have you ever thought about that with your unsaved friends? And you think, oh, they're so far from God. The healing that comes through faith, the, the righteousness of God is as accessible to your pagan friend as the next breath that they draw. That's how close any one person is. It's just a regard for Christ. It's just, here's Christ. He became a curse for you. Do you see it? That's how close salvation is at hand to any person. Matthew Henry said, this, not only is this righteousness tendered to them, which means given to them, but it's put upon them as a crown, as a robe. They are upon believing entitled to the benefits and privileges of it. And then he asks, but how is it to God's glory? It is to the glory of his grace. How is God glorified in this type of righteousness? It's that we marvel at his grace. Because chapters one through three showed us we could not earn it. We could not do it. This is how the gospel works. It's that in everything, God is glorified. He's glorified in punishing sin. And he's glorified in justifying sinners. The sinner gets no special credit. In fact, when we come to heaven, the scriptures say that we throw our crowns at his feet. It is silly to wear a crown in the presence of Jesus Christ. Even though we're told to compete for the crown, we want to strive for the crown and endure for Christ in this life and inherit a crown. It just means you get to have one to toss on the pile in front of Jesus. I want my crown to, to, to chuck to put at Jesus' feet. But nonetheless, we are given that crown as being entitled to its privileges. Friends, salvation is not just something that happens far off in the future. It's something that has reality right now. 
And it's a bit of an odd way for me to end a sermon, but I want to go to Revelation 1. As I've been reading Revelation this week, and uh, Shannon and I have been reading it together a little bit as well, and just marveling at the... It's crazy. It's crazy that how Christ reveals himself to John. So our salvation and our Savior himself does not exist merely in pages and in the nuts and bolts of salvation, right? It's not just like, oh, here's a textbook on how salvation works. You know, study it as well as you can. Because salvation is what we are walking in now. And Revelation, interestingly, is a book written to churches. It's not written to just individuals or just, I mean, although we, the church is comprised of individuals, it's written to the seven churches that existed geographically in that area at the time. And the revelation depicts Jesus Christ walking among the churches and having seven stars in his hand, which are the spirits of the seven churches. So the spirit of a church is sort of the collective mindset of the church. The spirit of the church. So say to the spirit of that church, which means have that church come together and hear this. And Jesus has a message for his church. And I want to acknowledge right now that it is a tough time for the church. And I'm not uh, depicting some kind of sob story or martyrdom. There's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters have faced through generations. We've never had to scrounge for Bibles. We've never had to meet in secret for fear of our lives. I mean, still, we're in luxury in the 21st century as the church. But nonetheless, I think it's a tough time for Christians, and we need to be reminded about what Christ is about. And so we look at John, who is a nobody in his own mind, and as he makes this greeting, Revelation 1.9 says, I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, meaning I was in exile. I was under persecution, but I'm your partner in persecution. Wherever you're at, whatever part of the church you belong to, John says, I'm your partner in it. We need to remember that about one another and about our brothers and sisters around the world. The saints stand together in times of trouble. And he says, the sound of a loud voice was speaking to me. And I turned and I saw the lampstands, which are the seven churches. And the sound of a loud voice, like a trumpet, told me to write in a book the things that you see and to send it to the churches. So what does it mean to be in Christ? We have the privilege of Christ's communication to us. He's our commander-in-chief who is in active communication with his troops. We're not fighting alone with no radio communication, with no intel on the enemy, with no backup troops. We're together, and we have our general who is standing in victory in the war room. And Christ speaks with his church. He guides his church. He shapes and sustains his church. And when he turned, funny, first thing he saw was the lampstands. Okay, so there's the churches. And then he saw the one who was standing among the churches. And this is the glorified Christ. Remember, he first came as a baby. Have you ever thought about what Jesus looks like now? This is probably the most accurate depiction of him as he is today, right now. He's not a little baby. He's not even a humble-looking carpenter. It says, in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen and the things that are about to take place after this. In other words, I'm the boss. Don't be afraid. Write it down and get it to the church. What a motivating picture this is. This is the glorified Christ who stands among his churches. He walks among the lampstands, trimming the wicks and adding oil and perpetuating and sustaining his church. Friends, you know where the safest place in the world to be is? In the church of Jesus Christ. The bride of Jesus Christ is the safest place on the planet that anyone can ever be in. Why? Because it's guarded by this guy. Did you hear about him? His face was shining like the strength of the full sun. And his sash is at his chest. Uh, a Hebrew Levitical priest, he would offer, he, when he was doing the work of sacrifice, his sash was around his waist. It was the working posture. It was the working part of his sash and when he was finished his sacrifice he would raise his sash to his chest to signify the completion of the sacrifice and when john saw him he fell at his feet like a dead man and i want to put to us that many of us are watching the world and we're falling like dead men many of us are watching the events and we are falling like dead men we need to turn to jesus christ and fall like dead men because when we fall before Jesus Christ, look what he does. He laid his right hand on me. I just noticed that this week. The right hand is the hand of fellowship. It's the hand of acceptance. So when we fall before Christ, what does Christ do? Kick us while we're down? He lays his hand on us and he says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I always was. I'll always be. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades amazingly because when we are in christ we can say with him that same sentence have you ever thought of that behold i was dead and now i'm alive forevermore that's the confession of the christian what are the privileges of having this righteousness of god we can say with christ that i was dead and behold i'm alive forevermore christ has the keys of death and hades but we trust him with those because his blood was spilled and because of the glory that God has revealed in his grace for us. So closing here, I just want to ask a few questions for your reflection and I'll email these out later, but are you aware of and confident in the finality of your freedom? Do you, re do you regard your freedom as final? Can you say with Paul, but now, you know, but now I was, I was like Abraham trembling on the mountain under the curse of the law, under the crushing requirements of the law. But now I'm free. Are you aware of that? And I would say as a sub question that the repetitive of reliance on sacrament or 
something that you do in order to have confidence before God means that you may not understand that. You may not understand the, the fullness of the gospel yet. And that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It just means that there's more for you. And there's a finality that you can uh, take hold of by faith. Uh, number two, what kind of oppression did Jesus break? In Luke chapter four, how did his life accomplish this? How did the righteousness come in a life that is Jesus Christ? And then finally, what does faith mean? And what is the responsibility that we have in faith to God? So I'll email those out, just things to further break down that text. But let me close in prayer, and then we will have a final hymn that we're excited to sing together. And then we'll do that. So, Father, thank you for your word. Lord, what a tremendous hope we have in the risen and resurrected Christ who we believe is among us right now walking among and strengthening the churches and speaking with us, not leaving us alone, but working among the churches. Father, strengthen your church here in Ontario. Strengthen it in Perth and Smith Falls and Carlton Place. Give strength and courage to your church, Father, to continue ministering the message of the gospel. Help us to reach the lost with this message, Lord, that they may draw the breath of true life through a confession of Jesus Christ, a looking to him and acknowledging his blood. Lord, we pray many more would come to this saving faith. We thank you for the fellowship we have as your church, Lord, um, as encouragement and strength for the days to come. We pray all this asking in faith that you would accomplish it and, and retain it eternally by the promises and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.